Welcome to Jury Duty, I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son, Paul, and his wife, Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes, including fraud, and homicide. In our last episode, we continued with the in-camera testimony of Mark Tinsley, the lawyer who represented the family of Mallory Beach in their claim for Beach's wrongful death against the Murdoch family. As part of an in-camera hearing before Judge Clifton Newman, so that the court may determine the admissibility of evidence of the defendant's financial crimes in this murder trial. In this installment, we again present coverage of Mr. Tinsley's testimony. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It is the morning of February 6th, 2023, day nine of the trial of Alex Murdoch. As we concluded our last episode, Prosecutor Creighton Waters continued his questioning of Mark Tinsley. Waters' final questions of our previous installment were in reference to Mr. Tinsley's assessment of Murdoch's insurance coverage and financial resources as it would relate to his liability in the Beach case. Having assessed that the defendant had no apparent insurance coverage, Mr. Tinsley testified that, on behalf of the Beach family, he was seeking discovery relating to Murdoch's financial resources when the murders of Paul and Maggie occurred, causing a delay in that discovery. As we begin today, Prosecutor Waters continues to question Mr. Tinsley, and at this moment, takes a step back to inquire generally about the witness's assessment of the defendant as an attorney and as a man of wealth. You've known Alec and have worked with him for a number of cases, is that correct? I, I had not worked with Alec in a number of cases, but I've known him for a long time. Okay, but you had you were generally familiar with him as a lawyer, is that right? I was. And what was your assessment of his skills as a plaintiff lawyer? What was he particularly good at? He was particularly good at reading people, making people feel like they were the most important person in the room, and capitalizing on surprise with the defense. You have a case with Alec. He hasn't done anything. It's Monday morning of the roster. Maybe you expect it to be continued. And he says, I'm ready for trial. And so he would he leveraged a lot of settlements that way. Was he good at understanding the emotional and sympathetic aspects of, of plaintiff's work and tort work that can be so crucial in defining what recoveries can be in these types of cases? Yeah, I think he was particularly good at reading people and, and knowing what made people tick. With this line of questioning, Waters appears to be trying to illustrate Alex Murdoch's capacity to manipulate the emotions of others. Prosecutor Waters moves on to ask Mr. Tinsley about whether or not the deaths of Maggie and Paul affected his assessment of Alex Murdoch's financial resources, as it might relate to the recovery of a financial reward for Mr. Tinsley's clients. 
You've testified that you had made it very clear to the defense throughout this time period that you were seeking a substantial personal recovery from Alec and had been told, well, he's broke, which you then responded, I don't believe that. Show me the books, correct? Correct. And that was what was on the table for June 10th, 2021, correct? Among other things. Among other things. But that's on the table, correct? Correct. After the murders happened, did that have any effect on your assessment of the case against Alec, and particularly as it relates to the sympathies and the emotion of the case, which can be so important to recovery. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yes. Uh, Explain yeah. that to the court then. Well, initially, probably say the first week, there was the shock and horror of what had happened, and 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 nobody really thought about anything other than that. But pretty quickly, I recognized that um, the case against Alec if he were a victim of some vigilante, would in fact be over. Would be over. It would be over. And explain just quickly to the court why that's the case. Well, you know, when you're asking for a money judgment, people have to be motivated to give you that money judgment. If you represent Attila the Hun uh, versus some sweet old grandmother, nobody's going to give Attila the Hun money. Uh, they would give money to some sweet grandmother. So if Alec had been victimized by a vigilante, nobody would have brought a verdict back against Alec. And I had other defendants in the case, so I would have ended the case against Alec. You would have ended the case against Alec with just... I probably, I mean, certainly there was $500,000 in insurance that was offered. I may have tried to see if he could cobble together the million dollars, but whatever the last offer would have been from Alec's side, that would have been the offer that we took. You had mentioned before that you had advised the defense of some of the mock jury presentations that you had done and some of the results from that and how they were very favorable to your case. Is that correct? The defense and some of Alec's partners, yes. It's fair to say, though, that as you just stated, that if Alec had been the victim of some sort of vigilante, those sympathies would have entirely changed as it related to Alec and Paul as well. Is that correct? Certainly. And that's led to what you, your assessment then in the wake of these murders. Is that correct? Correct. In his final questions for Mr. Tinsley, Prosecutor Waters asks the witness about his awareness of lawsuits related to the death of Gloria Satterfield. Ms. Satterfield was the former Murdoch housekeeper who died after a falling accident at the Moselle Road property. Her son, Tony, previously testified in the in-camera hearing regarding life insurance money that was diverted from Ms. Satterfield's estate and in Alex Murdoch's bank accounts for the defendant's own personal benefit. At some point, did you receive any call or any communication from the Satterfields about any recovery and the Gloria Satterfield death? At some point, my recollection is it's early September of 21, uh, Eric Harriet came to my office about that. There are a number of articles in the paper or the papers that are talking about this previous wrongful death case and wrongful death settlement and he came to my office at that time. All right, and did you uh, send, them, send them to someone? I sent him to Eric Bland. Nothing further this time, Your And with that, Prosecutor Creighton Waters concludes his direct examination of the witness. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. 
That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Judge Clifton Newman invites the defense to question the witness. Associate Attorney Philip Barber rises to begin his cross-examination of Mr. Tinsley on behalf of Alex Murdoch. Good morning, Mr. Tinsley. How are you? You testified at length uh, to the state grand jury, basically, this, this similar testimony you're giving here today. Is that correct? The testimony I gave today is included in what I said to the state grand jury. And it seems like the, the gist of this is that you were suing Alex Murdoch, who um, you believe was underinsured for, for this incident, and you're going to go after his personal assets, and that was going to put some financial pressure on him. Is that correct? Probably not exactly. I mean, I don't mean to quibble with you over the words you used, but I don't think it was financial pressure because I didn't. I was holding him personally accountable. I was insisting that he pay. I didn't see how a payment plan on a settlement would put any pressure on Alec. It was sort of a deal that he couldn't turn down from where I sat. But you were asking for money. From oh, him. sure. Yeah. Um, and, and the inquiry here today is about money, his money, his finances, correct? I don't think so, but... It certainly concerns his money. And you're uh, anticipating you're going to go to trial, is that correct? Yes. You're going to go to trial and get a verdict against Alex Murdoch, correct? That was what you thought That's where this was going? No, I, I mean, I didn't see how any reasonable person wouldn't settle the case, especially Alex. So I, I expected the case to settle. Ninety percent of cases settle, maybe 99. But if we had to try it, yes, we were going to try it. And if you were unable to offer more money, then your expectation on, say, on June 7th, you know, before these murders, your expectation was if he doesn't offer more money, we're going to trial. Any money. Right. It, was, it was no money. It, right. no, no money had been offered. So your expectation then was we're going to trial. If you offer me no money in a case that I'm pursuing against you, then the response is we are going to trial. And, and you were pretty far from trial on June 7th, uh, 2021, were you not? No. You believe you were close to taking it to trial? There was an urgency because John Taylor knew that he had about a year to live, and and we were going to try that case. My expectation was early fall, late summer. John Taylor was a Charleston-based attorney who represented Alex Murdoch in the 2019 boat crash case. Taylor passed away in June of 2022. Defense attorney Philip Barber continues his cross-examination by asking Mr. Tinsley about the timeline of the boat case during the summer of 2021. You expected to try the, the, the boat case in the summer of 2020, late summer of 2021? August, September, October, sometime in that time. You frame. felt like you were only two or three months away from trial? Sure. Even though we had all these pending motions that hadn't even been heard, including what venue to have? I had tried the case two times with a Beaufort jury in, during COVID. I was ready to go to trial. At, on, on that day, on June 7th, you hadn't even uh, yet asserted a negligent entrustment claim against Alex Ed. Well, I had with John Tiller. John Tiller knew and had agreed to the amendment. Right. There were a number of things that Alex's counsel had agreed to, including knowing that there was substantial punitive evidence in the case. But you, at that time, you hadn't even asserted that claim to the court. That well, was before the court, was it? That was just a conversation with John Tiller. That's the conversation that mattered. Because John Tiller would be the one who would object to the late presentation of the evidence, the late presentation of an expert, and he had agreed to all those things. But he had objected to the financial discovery you asked for. Well, 
There was an objection posed, correct? But he, he did object to that. When that answer was given in uh, October or September of 20, it was an objection. The hearing that was that this that motion to compel the financial detail, the testimony, is that's just one of many motions that needed to be heard. Is that correct? Correct. There, there are many motions that had piled up and needed to be heard. There were several. There were several. Do you remember what they all were? There was a motion to change venue. There was a motion to compel against Parker's. There was uh, Parker's had one or two motions. Some of the motions got resolved. Um, one of which was this motion to assert admiralty in the case and with the agreement that I would amend uh, to assert your negligent entrustment claim to get in all of the evidence that they knew I had, that was resolved that way. And you, you've had a lot of motions practiced in this case with Parker's, haven't you? More so since the murder. But has that motions practice with Parker's been about the murders of Maggie and Paul? Well, I, I mean, it, it's it's about it in the sense that that, that it certainly created uh, a lot of additional issues to deal with, but not, not specifically. There was there was a lot of motion practice about allegations of leaking a video from mediation, for example. Correct. I don't know about a lot, but th there, I had filed a motion that I ultimately withdrew. And uh, you believe that you were going to drag Parker's to a trial within two or three months, late summer, of of June 7th, even though we have all these fairly preliminary motions that haven't been heard, change of venue, asking to uh, amend pleadings, motions to compel discovery. Yeah, maybe you've never tried a civil case. So when COVID happened and everything was shut down for two months, I got my case together. My case is not dependent on, if I'm forced to try it, the bank institutions where he has accounts. My case is not dependent on the leaked video, that's a separate matter, uh, and, and, and ended up being a separate lawsuit. Um, so the answer is yes. I was ready to try my case. And you didn't need, for example, uh, an answer on the motion to compel that was pending against Parker's. You didn't actually need any of that stuff to go to trial against Parker's. Is that what you're saying? The, the You're talking about the, the percentage of financials, uh, I mean, percentage of sales that alcohol made up in his profits? No, I didn't need that. Well, let's put that up. I wanted it, but I didn't need it. Philip Barber flips through a document before handing it to Mr. Tinsley. Show you what's been marked as Defendant's Exhibit 82. You recognize that? Uh, it appears to be my motion to compel against Greg Parker's company. Barber then asks for the document to be displayed on the monitor for the witness and the judge. And this is the document on the screen that I've, I've handed to you. So we have, it's not just a, a Buried in here is some request for financial information, but you're requesting answers to request for production three, production request for production 11, request for production 16, request for production 17, which is uh, financial information, request for production 18, request for production 19, request for production 20, request for production 22, request uh, interrogatory number five, interrogatory number eight, interrogatory number nine, interrogatory number 10, Interrogatory number 12, interrogatory number 13, interrogatory number 15, interrogatory number 18. It seems like it's quite a bit of discovery you're demanding from Harper's in this motion. Which I would have had the answer to on June 10th. So you did, either I was getting it or I wasn't getting it, but it, but it, my, my case wasn't dependent on these things. They may have helped my case. They may have put pressure on uh, Parker's camp like I was trying to put pressure on Ellick, but the 
trial wasn't dependent on these things. Turning to the motion to compel um, Alex, uh, first, do you believe that the, uh, the Judge Hall's um, initial request in May to go forward with pending motion hearings was telegraphing a ruling on that specific motion, or do you believe that that was uh, him looking at these motions piling up and wanting to get some movement? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I, I, no, I, I, there's nobody in the courtroom, maybe uh, even including me, that wants the case resolved more than Judge Hall. When the late Mr. Tiller asked um, for a, a continuance, uh, you don't believe that was any kind of stalling tactic, do you? No. That, that, that was a legitimate health-based concern. And if you read my emails, you would see that I immediately agreed to it. John Tiller was my friend. Defense attorney Barber again sifts through a stack of legal documents before handing them to the witness. With regards to what you're asking for from uh, Alex, it's already been uh, shown to you, but I'll show you when it's been marked as 80. So this is asking for uh, an order compelling production on interrogatories 9 and 10, and then a set of supplemental uh, interrogatories and supplemental requests for production. Is that correct? It is. And if we turn to... And 9 and 10 are important as well. We didn't cover that, but I'm happy to speak to 9 and 10 because, you know, 9 and 10 asked Alec about... So, sir, no, no one's asked you about it. Okay. And we'll get to it. But first, let's turn to answers to the first supplemental interrogatories. This is the first page of Exhibit B. They're not so covered, Mr. Waters asked you about this list of all checking savings accounts, retirement accounts, and then you don't have to, to highlight or, or expand this stuff. All stock, and then number two, all stock certificates, and we go to the next page. All property interest of property of every kind whatsoever um, from February 24, 2019 forward. All life insurance policies, uh, four or five, all personal financial statements submitted to any bank, etc. Profit sharing plans, pension plans, etc. This is doesn't this look like supplemental discovery after you get a judgment? Supplemental proceedings? Uh, I, I've never had been involved in supplemental proceedings, so no, I don't think so. This is what my people needed answers to before they would agree to take anything that Ellen would have offered. In in tort cases against individuals, you know, in this case, a, a negligence in entrusting a, a boat and then a an alcohol-related you know, incident, before there's even motions for summary judgment, before there's any consideration of, of whether a case has been made for punitive damages, do you typically get this level of financial discovery of defendants? I think so. I think the judge ultimately agreed to give it to me. He agreed to give it to you? Sure. But I thought the hearing didn't happen. Well, you thought wrong. There's a lot of papers, so maybe you got confused. He granted this motion? I think so. You want to see the order? Yeah. It's... Uh, the record, October 7, 2021. Mark Tinsley rather dramatically retrieves a folded document from the interior breast pocket of his coat and hands it to Philip Barber. Barber unfolds the document and quickly scans it. Correct me if I'm wrong, what you've highlighted here is that um, Mr. Tiller, Tiller, Mr. Tiller, because of circumstances beyond his control, unable to gather, uh, provide necessary information, answer requests and interrogatories. Once the information is made available to Attorney Tiller, the court will schedule a hearing. If necessary, you forgot the last part. If necessary, the yes. court will schedule a hearing That's if right. necessary. Which means? If Mr. Tiller, the attorney on the case, can from his own client get the information. This is no way says that the court granted this motion, does it, sir? Uh, only to you, I think. I mean, it's clear that John said that 
Ellick was unavailable because he was in rehab at the time. He couldn't get the material. He's going to get the material, and the judge ordered you get the material. And if we need to schedule a hearing because you don't have the answers that you want, Mr. Tinsley, then we'll reschedule the hearing. This is an order that says the court will schedule a hearing on this motion to compel if necessary. It's My only granting the motion to compel, sir, is it? Oh, I think so. I think if he was just going to deny it, as you suggest, then it would have just said denied. Or it's, if it was it's granted, premature. Would you say granted? I think that's what it says. It's a practical matter when parties have discovery motions, uh, oftentimes, like Alec has in his own statement said he was working on getting the answers. The reason is you give the answers because you don't want to face what could happen in the argument with the judge. So this, this, my point is, is that if the judge were going to say it's premature, you're not going to get it, it's denied, any of the things you suggested in your motion, uh, he would have said that. That's not what he did. That's not what happened. And with that, we bring to an end this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we conclude our coverage of the in-camera testimony of Mark Tinsley. Also, check out the Crime Story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie and Tholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.